Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading The Foresight Saga, The Man of Property, by John Goldsworthy. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 At Home at Old Jollyon's Those privileged to be present at a family festival of the Foresights have seen that charming and instructive sight, an upper-middle-class family in full plumage. A 
and whosoever of these favoured persons has possessed the gift of psychological analysis, a talent without monetary value and properly ignored by the Forsytes, has witnessed a spectacle, not only delightful in itself, but illustrative of an obscure human problem. In plainer words, he's gleaned from a gathering of this family, no branch of which had a liking for the other, between no three members of whom existed anything worthy of the name of sympathy, evidence of that mysterious concrete tenacity which renders a family so formidable a unit of society, so clear a reproduction of society in miniature. He has been admitted to a vision of the dim roads of social progress, has understood something of patriarchal life, of the swarmings of hordes, of the rise and fall of nations. He is like one who, having watched a tree grow from its planting, a paragon of tenacity, insulation and success, amidst the deaths of a hundred other plants less fibrous, sappy and persistent. One day we'll see it flourishing with bland, full foliage and an almost repugnant prosperity at the summit of its efflorescence. On June 15th, 1886, about four the afternoon, the observer who chanced to be present at the house of old Jolly and Forsyte in Stanhope Gate might have seen the highest efflorescence of the Forsytes. This was the occasion of an at-home to celebrate the engagement of Miss June Forsyte, old Jollyan's granddaughter, to Mr. Philip Bussini. In the bravery of light gloves, buff waistcoats, feathers and frocks, the family were present, even Aunt Anne, who now but seldom left the corner of her brother Timothy's green drawing room, or under the aegis of a plume of dyed pampas grass and a light blue vase, she sat all day reading and knitting, surrounded by the effigies of three generations of Forsyths. Even Aunt Anne was there, her inflexible back and the dignity of her calm old face personifying the rigid possessiveness of the family idea. When a Forsyte was engaged, married, or born, the Forsytes were present. When a Forsyte died, but no Forsyte had as yet died, they did not die, death being contrary to their principles, they took precautions against it, the instinctive precautions of highly vitalized persons who resent encroachments on their property. About the Forsytes mingling that day with a crowd of other guests, there was a more than ordinarily groomed look, an alert, inquisitive assurance, a brilliant respectability, as though they were attired in defiance of something. The habitual sniff on the face of Soma's Forsyte had spread through their ranks. They were on their guard. The subconscious offensiveness of their attitude has constituted old Jollyan's home, the psychological moment of the family history, made it the prelude of their drama. The Forsytes were resentful of something, not individually, but as a family. This resentment expressed itself in an added perfection of raiment, an exuberance of family cordiality, an exaggeration of family importance, and the sniff. Danger, so indispensable in bringing out the fundamental quality of any society, group, or individual, was what the foresight scented, the premonition of danger but a burnish on their armour. For the first time, as a family, they appeared to have an instinct of being in contact with some strange and unsafe thing. Over against the piano, a man of bulk and stature was wearing two waistcoats on his wide chest, two waistcoats and a ruby pin, instead of the single satin waistcoat 
and a diamond pin of more usual occasions, and his shaven, square-old face, the colour of pale leather, with pale eyes, had its most dignified look above his satin stock. This was Swithin Forsyth. Close to the window, where he could get more than his fair share of fresh air, the other twin, James, the fat and the lean of it, old Jollyon called those brothers, like the bulky Swithin, over six feet in height, but very lean, as though destined from his birth to strike a balance and maintain an average, brooded over the scene with his permanent stoop. His grey eyes had an air of fixed absorption and some secret worry, broken at intervals by a rapid, shifting scrutiny of surrounding facts. His cheeks, thinned by two parallel folds, and a long, clean-shaven upper lip, were framed within dundreary whiskers. In his hands he turned and turned a piece of china, not far off, listening to a lady in brown, his only son, Soames, pale and well-shaved, dark-haired, rather bald, had poked his chin up sideways, carrying his nose with that aforesaid appearance of sniff, as though despising an egg which he knew he could not digest. Behind him, his cousin, the tall George, son of the fifth Forsyth, Roger, had a quilpish look on his fleshy face, pondering one of his sardonic jests. Something inherent to the occasion had affected them all. Seated in a row close to one another were three ladies, Aunts Anne, Hester, the two Forsyth maids, and Julie, short for Julia, who not in first youth had so far forgotten herself as to marry Septimus Small, a man of poor constitution. She had survived him for many years. With her elder and younger sister, she lived now in the house of Timothy, her sixth and youngest brother, on the Bayswater Road. Each of these ladies held fans in their hands, and each with some touch of colour, some emphatic feather or brooch, testified to the solemnity of the opportunity. In the centre of the room, under the chandelier, as became a host, stood the head of the family, old Jollyon himself. Eighty years of age, with his fine white hair, his dome-like forehead, his little dark grey eyes and an immense white moustache, which drooped and spread below the level of his strong jaw. He had a patriarchal look, and in spite of lean cheeks and hollows at his temples, seemed master of perennial youth. He held himself extremely upright, and his shrewd, steady eyes lost none of their clear shining. Thus he gave an impression of superiority to the doubts and dislikes of smaller men. Having had his own way for innumerable years, he had earned a prescriptive right to it, it would never have occurred to old Jollyon that it was necessary to wear a look of doubt or of defiance. Between him and the four other brothers who were present, James, Swithin, Nicholas and Roger, there was much difference, much similarity. In turn, each of these four brothers was very different from the other. Yet they too were alike. Through the varying features and expression of those five faces could be marked a certain steadfastness of chin underlying surface distinctions, marking a stamp, too prehistoric to trace, too remote and permanent to discuss, the very hallmark and guarantee of the family fortunes. Among the younger generation, in the tall, bull-like George, in pallid, strenuous Archibald, in young Nicholas with his sweet and tentative obstinacy, in the grave and foppishly determined Eustace, there was the same stamp, 
less meaningful perhaps, but unmistakable, a sign of something ineradicable in the family soul. At one time or another during the afternoon, all these faces, so dissimilar and so alike, had worn an expression of distrust, the object of which was undoubtedly the man whose acquaintance they were thus assembled to make. Philip Bassini was known to be a young man without fortune, but Forsyth girls had become engaged to such before and had actually married them. It was not altogether for this reason, therefore, that the minds of the Forsythes misgave them. They could not have explained the origin of a misgiven, obscured by the mist of family gossip. A story was undoubtedly told that he had paid his duty, called to Aunts Anne, Julie and Hester, in a soft grey hat. A soft grey hat, not even a new one, a dusty thing with a shapeless crown. So extraordinary, my dear, so odd. Aunt Hester, passing through the little dark hall, she was rather short-sighted, had tried to shoo it off a chair, taking it for a strange, disreputable cat. Tommy had such disgraceful friends. She was disturbed when it did not move. Like an artist forever seeking to discover the significant trifle which embodies the whole character of a scene or place or person, so those unconscious artists, the Forsythes, had fastened by intuition on this hat. It was their significant trifle, the detail in which was embedded the meaning of the whole matter, for each had asked himself, Come now, should I have paid that visit in that hat? And each had answered, No, and some with more imagination than others, had added, it would never have come on to my head. George, on hearing the story, grinned. The hat had obviously been worn as a practical joke. He himself was a connoisseur of such. Very haughty, he said, the wild buccaneer. And this mot, the buccaneer, was bandied from mouth to mouth till it became the favourite mode of alluding to Bossini. Her aunts reproached June afterwards about that hat. We don't think you ought to let him, dear, they had said. June had answered in her imperious brisk way like the little embodiment of will she was. Oh, what does it matter? Phil never knows what he's got on. No one had credited an answer so outrageous. A man not to know what he had on? No. What indeed was this young man who, in becoming engaged to June, old Johnian's acknowledged heiress, had done so well for himself? He was an architect, not in itself a sufficient reason for wearing such a hat. None of the Forsythes happened to be architects, but one of them knew two architects who would never have worn such a hat upon a call of ceremony in the London season. Dangerous. Ah, dangerous. June, of course, had not seen this, but though not yet nineteen, she was notorious. Had she not said to Mrs. Soames, who was always so beautifully dressed, that feathers were vulgar? Mrs. Soames had actually given up wearing feathers, so dreadfully downright was dear June. These misgivings, this disapproval, and perfectly genuine distrust, did not prevent the Forsythes from gathering to old Jollyon's invitation. An at-home at Stanholm Gate was a great rarity. None had been held for twelve years. Not indeed since old Mrs. Jollyon had died. Never there been so full an assembly, for, mysteriously united in spite of all their differences, they had taken arms against a common peril. Like cattle, when a dog comes into the field, they stood head to head and shoulder to shoulder, prepared to run upon and trample the invader to death. 
They had come too, no doubt, to get some notion of what sort of presents they would ultimately be expected to give. For though the question of wedding gifts was usually graduated in this way, what are you giving? Nicholas is giving spoons. So very much depended on the bridegroom. If he were sleek, well-brushed, prosperous-looking, it was more necessary to give him nice things. He would expect them. In the end, each gave exactly what was right and proper by a species of family adjustment arrived at as prices are arrived at on the stock exchange. The exact niceties being regulated at Timothy's commodious red-brick residence in Bayswater overlooking the park, where dwelt Aunt Anne, Julie, and Hester. The uneasiness of the Forsyte family has been justified by the simple mention of the hat. How impossible and wrong would it have been for any family, with the regard for appearances which should ever characterise the great upper middle class, to feel otherwise than uneasy? The author of The Uneasiness stood talking to June by the further door. His curly hair had a rumpled appearance, as though he found what was going on around him unusual. He had an air, too, of having a joke all to himself. George, speaking aside to his brother Eustace, said, Looks as if he might make a bolt of it, the dashing buccaneer. This very singular-looking man, as Mrs. Small afterwards called him, was of medium height and strong build, with a pale brown face, a dust-coloured moustache, very prominent cheekbones and hollow cheeks. His forehead sloped back towards the crown of his head and bulged out in bumps over the eyes, like foreheads seen in the lion house at the zoo. He had sherry-coloured eyes, disconcertingly inattentive at times. Old Jollyon's coachman, after driving June and Bassini to the theatre, had remarked to the butler, I don't know what to make of him. Looks to me for all the world like a half-tame leopard. And every now and then a foresight would come up, sidle round, and take a look at him. June stood in front, fending off this idle curiosity. A little bit of a thing, as someone once said, all hair and spirit with fearless blue eyes, a firm jaw, and a bright colour, whose face and body seemed too slender for her crown of red-gold hair. A tall woman, with a beautiful figure, which some member of the family had once compared to a heathen goddess, stood looking at these two with a shadowy smile. Her hands, gloved in French grey, were crossed one over the other, her grave, charming face held to one side, and the eyes of all men near were fastened on it. Her figure swayed, so balanced, that the very air seemed to set it moving. There was warmth, but little colour, in her cheeks. Her large, dark eyes were soft. But it was at her lips, asking a question, giving an answer with that shadowy smile, that men looked. They were sensitive lips, sensuous and sweet, and through them seemed to come warmth and perfume, like the warmth and perfume of a flower. The engaged couple thus scrutinised were unconscious of this passive goddess. It was Bassini who first noticed her and asked her name. June took her lover up to the woman with a beautiful figure. Irene is my greatest chum, she said. Please be good friends, you two. At the little lady's command, they all three smiled, and while they were smiling, Soames Forsyth, silently appearing from behind the woman with a beautiful figure, was his wife, said, Ah, introduce me too. He was seldom indeed far from Irene's side at a public function, and even when separated by the exigencies of social discourse, could be seen following her about with his eyes. 
in which were strange expressions of watchfulness and longing. At the window, his father, James, was still scrutinizing the marks on the piece of china. I wonder at Jolyon's allowing this engagement, he said to Aunt Anne. They tell me there's no chance of their getting married for years. This young bosoning, he made the word a dactyl in opposition to general usage of a short O, has got nothing. When Winifred married Darty, I made him bring every penny into settlement. Lucky thing too, they'd had nothing by this time. Aunt Anne looked up from her velvet chair. Grey curls banded her forehead, curls that, unchanged for decades, had extinguished in the family all sense of time. She made no reply, for she rarely spoke, husbanding her aged voice. But to James, uneasy of conscience, her look was as good as an answer. Well, he said, I couldn't help Irene's having no money. Soames was in such a hurry, he got quite thin, dancing attendance on her. Putting the bowl pettishly down on the piano, he let his eyes wander to the group by the door. It's my opinion, he said unexpectedly, that it's just as well as it is. And Anne did not ask him to explain the strange utterance. She knew what he was thinking. If Irene had no money, she would not be so foolish as to do anything wrong. For they said, they said she had been asking for a separate room. But of course, Soames had not. James interrupted her reverie. But where, he asked, was Timothy? Hadn't he come with them? Through Aunt Anne's compressed lips, a tender smile forced its way. No, he didn't think it wise with so much of this diphtheria about, and he is so liable to take things. James answered, Well, he takes good care of himself. I can't afford to take the care of myself that he does. Nor was it easy to say which of admiration, envy, or contempt was dominant in that remark. Timothy indeed was seldom seen. The baby of the family, a publisher by profession, he had some years before, when business was at full tide, scented out the stagnation which indeed had not yet come, but which ultimately, as all agreed, was bound to set in, and selling his share in a firm engaged mainly in the production of religious books, had invested the quite conspicuous proceeds in 3% consoles. By this act, he had at once assumed an isolated position, no other foresight being content with less than 4% for his money. And this isolation had slowly and surely undermined a spirit, perhaps better than commonly endowed with caution. He had become almost a myth, a kind of incarnation of security haunting the background of the foresight universe. He had never committed the imprudence of marrying or encumbering himself in any way with children. James resumed, tapping the piece of china. This isn't real old Worcester. I suppose Jolion's told you something about that young man. From all I can learn, he's got no business, no income, and no connection worth speaking of. But then, I know nothing. Nobody tells me anything. Aunt Anne shook her head. Over her square-chinned, aquiline old face, a trembling passed. The spidery fingers of her hands pressed against each other and interlaced, as though she were subtly recharging her will. The eldest by some years of all the foresights, she held a peculiar position amongst them. Opportunists and egotists, one and all, though not indeed more so than their neighbours, they quailed before her incorruptible figure, and when opportunities were too strong, what could they do but avoid her? Twisting his long, thin legs, James went on. 
Jolyon, he will have his own way. He's got no children, and stopped, recollecting the continued existence of old Jolyon's son, young Jolyon, June's father, who had made such a mess of it and done for himself by deserting his wife and child and running away with that foreign governess. Well, he resumed hastily, if he likes to do these things, I suppose he can afford to. Now, what's he going to give her? I suppose he'll give her a thousand a year. He's got nobody else to leave his money to. He stretched out his hand to meet that of a dapper, clean-shaven man with hardly a hair on his head, a long, broken nose, full lips, and cold grey eyes under rectangular brows. Well, Nick, he muttered, how are you? Nicholas Forsythe, with his bird-like rapidity and the look of a preternaturally sage schoolboy, he had made a large fortune, quite legitimately, out of the companies of which he was a director, placed within that cold palm the tips of his still colder fingers and hastily withdrew them. I'm bad, he said, pouting. Been bad all week. Don't sleep at night. The doctor can't tell why. He's a clever fellow, or I shouldn't have him, but I get nothing out of him but bills. Doctors, said James, coming down sharp on his words. I've had all the doctors in London for one or another of us. There's no satisfaction to be got out of them. They'll tell you anything. There's Swithing now. What could have they done him? There he is. He's bigger than ever. He's enormous. They can't get his weight down. Look at him. Swithin Forsyte, tall, square, and broad, with a chest like a powder pigeon's and its plumage of bright waistcoats, came strutting towards them. Er, how are you? he said in his dandified way, aspirating the H strongly. This difficult letter was almost absolutely safe in his keeping. How are you? Each brother wore an air of aggravation as he looked at the other two, knowing by experience that they should try to eclipse his ailments. We were just saying, said James, that you don't get any thinner. Swithing protruded his pale, round eyes with the effort of hearing. Thinner? I'm in good case, he said, leaning a little forward. Not one of your thread papers like you. But afraid of losing the expansion of his chest, he leaned back again into a state of immobility, for he prized nothing so highly as a distinguished appearance. Aunt Anne turned her old eyes from one to the other. Indulgent and severe was her look. In turn, the three brothers looked at Anne. She was getting shaky. Wonderful woman, eighty-six if a day, might live another ten years, and had never been strong. Swithin and James, the twins, were only seventy-five, Nicholas a mere baby of seventy or so. All were strong, and the inference was comforting. Of all forms of property, their respective healths naturally concerned them most. I'm very well in myself, proceeded James, but my nerves are out of order. The least thing worries me to death. I shall have to go to Bath. Bath, said Nicholas. I've tried Harrogate. That's no good. What I want is sea air. There's nothing like Yarmouth. And when I go there, I sleep. My liver's very bad, interrupted Swithin slowly. Dreadful pain here. And he placed his hand on his right side. Want of exercise, muttered James, his eyes on the china. He quickly added, I get a pain there too. Swithin reddened, a resemblance to a turkey cock coming upon his old face. Exercise, he said. I take plenty. I never use the lift at the club. I didn't know, James hurried out. I know nothing about anybody. Nobody tells me anything. Swithin fixed him with a stare. What do you do for pain there? James brightened. I take a compound. 
How are you, uncle? June stood before him, her resolute small face raised from her little height to his great height, and her hand outheld. The brightness faded from James's visage. How are you? he said, brooding over her. So you're going to Wales tomorrow to visit your young man's aunts? You'll have a lot of rain there. This isn't real old Worcester. He tapped the bowl. Now, that set I gave your mother when she was married was a genuine thing. June shook hands one by one with her three great uncles and turned to Aunt Anne. A very sweet look had come into the old lady's face. She kissed the girl's cheek with trembling fervor. Well, my dear, she said, and so you're going for a whole month. The girl passed on and Aunt Anne looked after her slim little figure. The old lady's round, steel-gray eyes, over which a film like a bird's was beginning to come, followed her wistfully amongst the bustling crowd for people were beginning to say goodbye, and her fingertips, pressing and pressing against each other, were busy again with the recharging of her will against that inevitable ultimate departure of her own. Yes, she thought. Everybody's been most kind. Quite a lot of people come to congratulate her. She ought to be very happy. Amongst the throng of people by the door, the well-dressed throng drawn from the families of lawyers and doctors, from the stock exchange and all the innumerable avocations of the upper middle class, there were only some 20% of Forsytes. But to Aunt Anne they seemed all Forsytes, and certainly there was not much difference. She saw only her own flesh and blood. It was her world, this family, and she knew no other, had never perhaps known any other. All their little secrets, illnesses, engagements and marriages, how they were getting on and whether they were making money, all this was her property, her delight, her life. Beyond this, only a vague, shadowy mist of facts and persons of no real significance. This is what she would have to lay down when it came to her turn to die, this which gave to her that importance, that secret self-importance, without which none of us can bear to live, and to this she clung wistfully with a greed that grew each day. If life were slipping away from her, this she would retain to the end. She thought of June's father, young Jollyon, who had run away with that foreign girl, and what a sad blow to his father and to them all. Such a promising young fellow. A sad blow, though there had been no public scandal, most fortunately, Joe's wife seeking for no divorce. A long time ago. And when June's mother died six years ago, Joe had married that woman, and they had two children now, so she had heard. Still, he had forfeited his right to be there, had cheated her of the complete fulfillment of her family pride, deprived her of the rightful pleasure of seeing and kissing him, of whom she had been so proud, such a promising young fellow. The thought rankled with the bitterness of a long-inflicted injury in her tenacious old heart. A little water stood in her eyes. With a handkerchief of the finest lawn, she wiped them stealthily. Well, Aunt Han, said a voice behind. Soames Foresight, flat-shouldered, clean-shaven, flat-cheeked, flat-waisted, yet with something round and secret about his whole appearance, looked downwards and aslant at Aunt Anne, as though trying to see through the side of his own nose. And what do you think of the engagement? he asked. Aunt Anne's eyes rested on him proudly. Of all the nephews, since young Jolion's departure from the family nest, he was now her favourite, for she recognised in him a sure trustee of the family soul, that must so soon slip beyond her keeping. Very nice for the young man, she said, and he's a good-looking young fellow. 
but I doubt if he's quite the right lover for dear June. Soames touched the edge of a gold-lacquered luster. She'll tame him, he said, stealthily wetting his finger and rubbing it on the knobby bulbs. That's genuine old lacquer. You can't get it nowadays. It'd do well in a sale at Jobson's. He spoke with relish as though he felt that he was cheering up his old aunt. It was seldom he was so confidential. I wouldn't mind having it myself, he added. You can always get your price for old lacquer. You're so clever with all those things, said Aunt Han. And how is dear Irene? Soames' smile died. Pretty well, he said. Complained she can't sleep. She sleeps a great deal better than I do. And he looked at his wife, who was talking to Vicini by the door. Aunt Han sighed. Perhaps, she said, it will be just as well for her not to see so much of June. She's such a decided character, dear June. Soames flushed. His flushes passed rapidly over his flat cheeks and centred between his eyes, where there remained the stamp of disturbing thoughts. I don't know what she sees in that little flibbertigibbet, he burst out. But noticing that they were no longer alone, he turned and again began examining the luster. They tell me Jolion's bought another house, said his father's voice close by. He must have a lot of money. Must have more money than he knows what to do with. Montpellier Square, they say, close to Soames. They never told me. Irene never tells me anything. Capital position, not two minutes from me, said the voice of Swithin, and from my rooms I can drive to the club in eight. The position of their houses was of vital importance to the Forsythes. Nor was this remarkable since the whole spirit of their success was embodied therein. Their father, a farming stock, had come from Dorsetshire near the beginning of the century. Superior Dosset Forsyte, as he was called by his intimates, had been a stonemason by trade and risen to the position of master builder. Towards the end of his life, he moved to London, where, building on until he died, he was buried at Highgate. He left over £30,000 between his ten children. Old Jolion alluded to him, if at all, as a hard, thick sort of man, not much refinement about him. The second generation of Forsytes felt, indeed, that he was not greatly to their credit. The only aristocratic trait they could find in his character was the habit of drinking Madeira. Aunt Hester, an authority on family history, described him thus. I don't recollect that he ever did anything, at least not in my time. He was an owner of houses, my dear. His hair about your Uncle Swithin's colour, rather square build. Tall? No, not very tall. He had been five foot five with a mottled face. A fresh-coloured man. I remember he used to drink Madeira, but ask your Aunt Anne. What was his father? He, uh, he had to do with the land down in Dorsetshire by the sea. James once went down to see for himself what sort of place this was that they had come from. He found two old farms with a cart truck rutted into the pink earth, leading down to a mill by the beach, a little grey church with a buttressed outer wall, and a smaller and greyer chapel. The stream which worked the mill came bubbling down in a dozen rivulets, and pigs were hunting round that estuary. A haze hovered over the prospect. Down this hollow, with their feet deep in the mud and their faces towards the sea, it appeared that the primeval foresights had been content to walk Sunday after Sunday for hundreds of years. Whether or no James had cherished hopes of an inheritance, or of something rather distinguished to be found down there, he came back to town in a poor way 
and went about with a pathetic attempt at making the best of a bad job. There's very little to be had out of that, he said. Regular country little place, old as the hills. His age was felt to be a comfort. Old Jolion, in whom a desperate honesty welled up at times, will allude to his ancestors as yeoman, I suppose very small bearer. Yet he would repeat the word yeoman as if it afforded him consolation. They had all done so well for themselves, these foresights, that they were all what is called of a certain position. They had shares in all sorts of things, not as yet, with the exception of Timothy and consuls, for they had no dread in life like that of 3% for their money. They collected pictures, too, and were supporters of such charitable institutions as might be beneficial to their sick domestics. From their father, the builder, they inherited a talent for bricks and mortar. Originally perhaps members of some primitive sect, they were now in the natural course of things members of the Church of England, and caused their wives and children to attend with some regularity the more fashionable churches of the metropolis. To have doubted their Christianity would have caused them both pain and surprise. Some of them paid for pews, thus expressing, in their most practical form, their sympathy with the teachings of Christ. Their residences, placed at stated intervals round the park, watched like sentinels, lest the fair heart of this London, where their desires were fixed, should slip from their clutches and leave them lower in their own estimations. There was old Jollyon in Stanhope Place, the Jameses in Park Lane, Swithin in the lonely glory of orange and blue chambers in Hyde Park mansions. He had never married, not he. The Soneses in their nest off Knightsbridge, the Rogers in Prince's Garden. Roger was that remarkable foresight who had conceived and carried out the notion of bringing up his four sons in a new profession. Collect house property, nothing like it, he would say. I never did anything else. The Haymans again. Mrs. Hayman was the one married Forsyte's sister, in a house high up on Campton Hill, shaped like a giraffe and so tall that it gave the observer a crick in the neck. The Nicholases in Labrick Grove, a spacious abode and a great bargain. And last, but not least, Timothy's and the Bayswater Road, where Anne and Julie and Hester lived under his protection. But all this time James was musing, and now he inquired of his host and brother what he had given for that place in Montpelier Square. He himself had had his eye on a house there for the last two years, but they wanted such a price. Old Jollyon recounted the details of his purchase. Twenty-two years to run, repeated James. The very house I was after. You've given too much for it. Old Jollyon frowned. It's not that I want it, said James hastily. It wouldn't suit my purpose at that price. Soames knows the house. Well, he'll tell you it's too dear. His opinion's worth having. I don't, said old Jollyon, care a fig for his opinion. Well, murmured James, you will have your own way. It's a good opinion. Goodbye. We're going to drive down to Hurlingham. They tell me June's going to Wales. You'll be lonely tomorrow. What do you do with yourself? You'd better come and dine with us. Old Jollyon refused. He went down to the front door and saw them into their barouche and twinkled at them, having already forgotten his spleen. Mrs. James facing the horses, tall and majestic with auburn hair. On her left, Irene, the two husbands, father and son, sitting forward, as though they expected something opposite their wives. Bobbing and bounding upon the spring cushions, silent, swaying to each motion of their chariot, old Jollyon watched them drive away under the sunlight. 
During the drive, the silence was broken by Mrs. James. Do you ever see such a collection of rumpty two people? Soames, glancing at her beneath his eyelids, nodded, and he saw Irene steal at him one of her unfathomable looks. It is likely enough that each branch of the Forsyte family made that remark as they drove away from old Jollyon's at home. Amongst the last of the departing guests, the fourth and fifth brothers, Nicholas and Roger, walked away together, directing their steps alongside Hyde Park towards the Parade Street station of the underground. Like all other Forsytes of a certain age, they kept carriages of their own and never took cabs if by any means they could avoid it. The day was bright, the trees of the park in the full beauty of mid-June foliage. The brothers did not seem to notice phenomena, which contributed nevertheless to the jauntiness of promenade and conversation. Yes, said Roger. She's a good-looking woman, that wife of Soames's. I'm told they don't get on. This brother had a high forehead and the freshest colour of any of the Forsytes. His light grey eyes measured the street frontage of the houses by the way, and now and then he would level his umbrella and take a lunar, as he expressed it, of the varying heights. She'd no money, replied Nicholas. He himself had married a good deal of money, of which, it being then the golden age before the Married Women's Property Act, he had mercifully been enabled to make a successful use. What was her father? Heron was his name, a professor, so they tell me. Roger shook his head. There's no money in that, he said. They say her father's mother was cement. Roger's face brightened. But he went bankrupt, went on Nicholas. Ah, exclaimed Roger. Soons will have trouble with her. You mark my words, he'll have trouble. She's got a foreign look. Nicholas licked his lips. She's a pretty woman. And he waved aside a crossing sweeper. How did he get hold of her? Asked Roger presently. She must cost him a pretty penny in dress. Anne tells me, replied Nicholas. He was half cracked about her. She refused him five times. James, he's nervous about it, I can see. Ah, said Roger again. I'm sorry for James. He had trouble with Darty. His pleasant colour was heightened by exercise. He swung his umbrella to the level of his eye more frequently than ever. Nicholas's face also wore a pleasant look. Too pale for me, he said, but her figure's capital. Roger made no reply. I call her distinguished-looking, he said at last. It was the highest praise in the foresight vocabulary. That young Bassini will never do any good for himself. They say at Burkitt's he's one of those artistic chaps, got an idea of improving English architecture. There's no money in that. I should like to hear what Timothy would say to it. They entered the station. What class are you going? I go second. No second for me, said Nicholas. You never know what you may catch. He took a first-class ticket to Notting Hill Gate, Roger a second to South Kensington. The train coming in a minute later, the two brothers parted and entered their respective compartments. Each felt aggrieved that the other had not modified his habits to secure his society a little longer, but as Roger had voiced it in his thoughts, always a stubborn beggar Nick, and as Nicholas expressed it to himself, cantankerous chap Roger always was. There was little sentimentality about the Forsytes, in that great London which they had conquered and become merged in. What time had they to be sentimental? Good night.